Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. In fact, why don't we take a moment and pray together before we dive into the message. Father, we come before you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power in it. We thank you for prayer. That the God of this universe gives us his attention is an overwhelming gift. And we thank you for it. We thank you that you've given us uh, spiritual disciplines like fasting that get us out of our norm, that in no way obligate you to us, but you use them to change us, to help us focus on you, to help us be united before you. So Lord, I, I pray for this uh, 21 day journey that many of us in the church are gonna do together. I pray, would you use it in our lives? Would you use it in our church? We do pray for our community, for our state, for our country. We pray for these times that you've called us in. We pray that we could live well as the church you've called us to be. And Lord, I pray that even as we dive into this passage, as Paul teaches us how to do that, I pray you'd open our hearts and minds to what you want us to learn. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are in this section where we're at the end of chapter 13, and it's been a pretty weighty chapter. Um, you put 12 and 13 together, all that Paul's walked us through of what does it mean? What does it mean to be a church that loves each other well? What does it mean to interact with our enemies? Last week we looked at how do we interact with our government? How do we live in a way that we're subjected to the government while at the same time standing up for what God's called us to stand up for? And there's some unique things about being a citizen in this country of how do you apply that passage and do that well. And as we come to the end of 13, you gotta remember this context that Paul's writing. He's, he's writing a world, you remember, he's sending this to Rome and, and you've got this machine that is the Roman government that is taking over the world. It's this unstoppable force that is dominating the world through might, through power. We have the biggest, baddest army in the world and nobody stands against us and is swallowing it up. And, and, and Paul writes under these emperors, some of which are a little bit crazy, literally crazy when they enact these laws. He's writing this letter from Corinth. So he's writing Rome and he's in Corinth. And if you know anything about Corinth, Corinth was the most sexualized city of the day. I mean, it's kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. If you lived in the Roman Empire, it's like, oh, you're going to Corinth? Oh, I know why you're going to Corinth. And, and so around him, he's seeing every form of that and every action of it. And, and you gotta remember for a Jew, for a culture that's very conservative, for people that have come from conservative background and conservative culture and conservative ways, and then you've got this dominating force of Rome, and then, and then you've got this sexual expression that's happening everywhere. You can feel a lot under threat and angry all the time and worried all the time. And so as Paul's telling us how to live, he's gonna summarize at the end of this passage, this section we've been in in Romans, I just say it's some simple rules of life that instead of just focusing on government all the time or focusing on culture that's going bad or even focusing on the things that make us upset, 
He says, hey, can I just boil it down to some simple ways that if you just follow this, this is what you do every day to live this out in a world that's changing all the time. And, and I say that because our world in a lot of ways feels like the world he was writing it in. We face the same things and we have some of those same emotions. And so as much as possible, this passage, we just boil it down these last few verses. Some, I've, I've called it rules of life. And if you look in your notes, there's, it's pretty simple. I put four ups. There's four ups that you gotta live out. If I was more creative, I would have said seven up. But then the sermon would have been twice as long too. So be thankful. Be thankful that you only got four with that. Look, look at the four ups in this. Here's the first one he gives us is pay up, pay up. In the middle of a world like this, how should I live? He says, hey, let me just boil it down simply. You need to pay up. And he just told us we need to pay our taxes and we need to pay honor to those who need it. But now he turns it a little bit and he goes, hey, let's, let's not just think about government as a whole. Let's, let's just talk about everyday life. He says, owe no one anything in verse eight, except to love each other for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. He starts summarizing parts of the 10 commandments. And any of the other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's interesting to me, in the middle of, of this discussion and all that, he goes, hey, let, let's boil it back down. When you think about your everyday life, you need to think about, and the people that you interact with, that you have an obligation to love. You have a debt of love is what he's saying in that. And, and when you think about it with this, we have a debt of love to each other is what he's telling us explicitly. There's a debt of love that you have. Now, you, you look at that and you go, well, I don't owe other people love. They don't love me. It's different for the church. See, we're called at the very core, if you take all the law, everything, it comes down to, do I love God and do I love other people? I love God because he first loved me. Well, I mean, we covered that in Romans. He did for me what no one else would do. He did for me when I didn't deserve it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, and so this, this debt of gratitude that I have to God, and I don't owe it to him because I got to pay back what he did. That's not how he set it up. But it is interesting that he set it up. He goes, hey, I want you guys to pay it forward. I want you to pay forward this love that I've given you. And so when you think about this debt, this obligation that you have, it's not that you got to earn back to God, but God says, hey, in the same way that I loved you when you didn't deserve it, you now have an obligation to love other people that way. As you look at that, I love how Ray Stedman puts it. He, he, he says, you know, I have owed money to people in my life. And I notice that whenever I meet people I owe money to, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. You ever had that? You owe somebody something? And I mean, as soon as you see them, you think about it, don't you? You go, oh yeah, I owe him. I owe him 10 bucks from that lunch last week or maybe more money, depending on it. Uh, hopefully it's not your bookie that you owe money, but uh, he says, I remember the debt that I owe them and I wonder if that's what they're thinking too. This is what Paul says we're to do about love. We're to remember that we have an obligation to every person to love them. There's this sense of obligation that I, I live in 
that, that every person, and you say, no, wait a second, Tim, every person, he says, love your neighbor. And so maybe you're thinking about your neighbor right now. And I got great neighbors, by the way, so I love that part of the verse. Some of you go, man, I have lousy neighbors. I hate this verse. And I'm like, stinks to be you. I know some of your neighbors with, with that. You still have to love them. But we can't just reduce it down. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees, when they, remember when they asked Jesus, they were like, so when you say love your neighbor, who actually qualifies as my neighbor? And notice what they're doing. Same thing that we kind of do emotionally of, how broad is this thing really? Can't I get it down to just, you know, a few people? And then Jesus tells the story, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. You remember it, the Good Samaritan? The, the, the guy who was from the race that they all looked down on and he's a hero of the story. And he helped a man who was in a ditch that was hurt that he didn't know, by the way, had no relationship with before, but came across him and he was the one in need in his path. Meanwhile, the religious officials, the, the temple leader, the different scribes, they saw him and passed by. They had real important things to do and they didn't love and, and you, you look at that story, and I mean, it's such a convicting story on so many levels that Jesus now suddenly takes it and goes, your neighbor's not just the person that you wanna choose right next to you or the friend that you already had. It's the person that you come across, the person in your path that you can help in that time of need with it. I, I remember years ago, I, I was reading this passage one morning and it, I was convicted because the religious officials of the day, the pastors of the day, were the ones that passed by. And it's probably because they had to hurry on to get to the temple to do really important things there. And later that week, it was a Sunday afternoon, I was headed to church, I was teaching an apologetics class. I had this big class and I was getting really focused on it because it was a really hard class because you cover all the different questions about Christianity in it. And as I'm driving along, I look over and there's a guy in a Jeep and he's got his daughter, his daughter looks about five or six years old and he stopped in the middle lane and I, I couldn't get around him to take the left turn. So finally I pull up to him and he goes, hey, sorry, I'm out of gas. And I was like, oh man, stinks to be you. And uh, took my turn. And in that moment, I mean, God brought back the verse of the Good Samaritan. And my first thought was, seriously, God, you're gonna bring that up now? I need to get to this really important class. Oh, just like the other religious officials in the parable. So I pulled into the gas station and I walked in and I said, hey, do you have a gas can? And they go, no, we, we don't have, we're, we sold out of them. And I remember in that moment, I thought, okay, God, I tried. <laughs> I, I did my part. And the gas station was connected to a Subway sandwich shop. And the girl behind the Subway counter, she screams out, I can empty out the pickle jar if you like. I was like, excuse me? She holds up this massive pickle jar. She said, I can pour out the pickle jar and you can fill it with gasoline. I gotta tell you, when I pulled back up to that Jeep <laughs> with a pickle jar of gasoline, the guy looked at me like I was the, I mean, are you coming with a bomb? And then we went over to the Jeep and he said, hey, you have a funnel? And I thought that would have been a smart thing to get. <laughs> so as we sat there with cardboard funneling gas into his Jeep and we finally get enough in. 
And I'm like up to my elbows in gasoline at this point, about to go teach the class. And I'm thinking, okay, I've done all this. I'm gonna share the love of Jesus with them. And he starts the car and he goes, great, we're good. He's gone. I was like, seriously, God? I mean, I didn't get to share anything with him. And in that moment, God said it wasn't about him. It's about you. So you love this idea of loving your neighbor, Tim. You don't actually really like loving them though. Not when it doesn't fit your time or your schedule or your agenda, which by the way, it usually never does. You'll never be able to calendar out that you go, hmm, on Tuesday afternoon, I've got a free hour. I think I'll love neighbors then. It'll always show up in something that robs from you or takes from you or cuts into what you need. But Paul said, this is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to live. That we're not just narrowing our world in that way because when we do that, see, loving my neighbor fulfills God's plan. It fulfills how God set the whole thing up. That's why Jesus, when they asked him, they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He is not saying, because this is how sometimes we twist this. He is not saying, as long as you just love people, you don't have to worry about God's laws. As long as you just, if you're loving, don't worry about all those commandments. No, it's the opposite. He's saying all those commandments were to teach you how to love God and to love people. In fact, if you take the 10 commandments, first four commandments teach you, how how do I love God better? And then the the final six commandments, how do I love people? That's why Paul summarized them again. And so so if we just applied those final six commandments, I mean, just think about it. If you just went and said, okay, I'm I'm gonna honor my parents. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna cheat. I'm not gonna murder. I'm not gonna commit adultery. I'm not gonna covet. I'm not gonna want what they want, whether it's their house or their car or their wife or whatever it is, I'm not gonna spend my life coveting. I'm not gonna make a false accusation. I won't say anything false about another person. See, this is what love really looks like. This is how you love people well. Could you fathom what the Bay Area would look like if just for 24 hours, those commandments were lived out by everyone? Can you imagine what it would, the life it would bring to this community? And so Paul looks at us and he goes, okay, it starts with you guys. You love that way. And it's not just an emotion that you want to feel every so often. Love is not how you get to define it. Love is love no matter how you define it. You go, mm, actually, no. Love has been defined by God. His character, he is love. He showed us in his word how to live this out in real ways. And he looks at us and he goes, you had the obligation to pay up. That every person you meet, you think, okay, I've got this obligation. How how do I live out this debt of love I have to this person? And some of them are really hard to love. Some of them will test your love, just like we did God. And the same way he didn't give up on us, Paul says, hey, don't get so caught up in this world that you're living in that you lose just the core operating principle. Love people 
the way God loved you. The second thing he says with this is uh, wake up, wake up. So the first one is pay up. Second one, wake up. He says, besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us than now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He says, you know the time. The, the word here, there's two Greek words for time. Uh, one of them is chronos. The other one is kairos. This is kairos. Chronos is chronology. So it's linear time. Kairos is the season. And so he says, we live in a season of the world with this. And so he's not saying that, oh man, I know exactly Jesus is coming back. We're right at the very end. But he says, we live in the season that he could come back. We live in the season of the world in, in that way. We need to be awake to the time that we're in. And he says, you guys, you're, you're, you're falling asleep at the wheel. You're not paying attention to the time that it is. You're not recognizing salvation is nearer to us now than ever before. And when he's talking about that salvation, he's talking about the final salvation when Jesus returns. Jesus said the same thing to the church in Sardis. He uses similar terminology. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains is about to die for I have not found your works complete in my sight of God. Remember them what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you'll not know at what hour I come against you. And both of them have that, that same sense, that same terminology of you can get dulled in this age you're living in, you can get dulled in this time that every time you need somebody to go, wake up. In fact, some of you right now, wake up. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul's saying in it. Be, be aware of the timing of that. Salvation is near. Now, he doesn't say that to scare us. And, and uh, you know, as a kid who grew up in the 70s, and, uh, you know, the rage of the late great planet Earth when that book came out. I mean, Jesus was coming back any second because they had figured out all the signs on it. And then, you know, in the 90s with Left Behind. And then you had this, this sense of he's coming like a thief in the night. In fact, I mean, when I was a kid growing up in church, if you went to a lock-in during that time, I can promise you this, before the night was over, that youth pastor was gonna show the movie called Thief in the Night. And it was this movie, you know, that people are there and Jesus comes and they disappear in it. And, you know, as I look back on it, you know, the youth pastor wasn't allowed to show horror movies. So it was kind of Christian horror movie. It scared everybody. <laughs> and it was also great for his job because he was guaranteed everybody's coming to Jesus tonight. We're going to show Thief in the Night about three in the morning. They'll all make a decision with that. It, it's not this scare tactic that he's talking about, but he is saying salvation's closer now than it's ever been. So I get asked, I mean, are, do you think Jesus is coming back? I can say this unequivocally, we are closer now than we've ever been in church history. And we'll always be. And if I wanted to, I, I look at the world just like you do. I look at what's happening with technology and with governments and world and all that. And there's parts of it that are kind of fascinating. And I thought about it. If I took about a week, I think if I took a week, I could go write an end times book that would be a bestseller that would point all these things to it's happening right now. And the reality is 20 years from now, somebody will be laughing about that book. Probably. Jesus said, we don't know the hour or the time. And so we, we leave that to him. Remember, that's one of his things. Here's, here's what he's telling us to do. You live with a sense of urgency though right now. 
Live with the sense focused on what's important. And, And so as you say that, what he's saying is, there's no time to waste in this current age. You don't have time to waste. I think if Jesus were writing to us today, I don't know that he would say, wake up. I think he would say, look up. Look up from your screen. Look up. How much time are you spending on that device? How much time are you not fully engaged in? Guys, we we only get a little bit of time with our kids in the home. That doesn't feel that way. But it goes pretty quick, I can tell you this right now. You only get so many hours with them. You, You only have a certain amount of time as a couple that you actually get quality time together. You only have a limited amount of time to actually love people in a way that they would be interested in Jesus. And if if we've spent all of that time distracted, numbed out, addicted to whether it's a device or anything in that, Paul says, hey, wake up. Don't don't waste the time. There's, There's urgency of this season that you live in. You ask yourself, how many hours a week do I live fully present with the people around me? See, that's what it means to live an expectation of Christ's return. To live an expectation. Live in a way that, yeah, he could return now and I'm ready for it. I'm ready for that time. And as I say that, I just ask you, as you you think about it, let's just do an exercise in our minds real quick. If I were to tell you unequivocally, Jesus Christ is coming back on December 31st of this year, what would the next couple of months look like for you? I mean, if you knew it, absolute guaranteed, Jesus is coming back December 31st, 2022. This is an exercise, by the way, I'm not making a prediction, okay? Let me make sure I'm clear on that. But what would you do? Would you quit your job tomorrow? Would you cash out? I mean, just go empty out. Oh man, that retirement account I've been storing up, I'm gonna empty it out and I'm gonna go go live a little. What would you do? Whatever comes to mind, you would do what you really value, probably. And so if you tell yourself right now, I mean, probably my first thought is, oh man, I'd wanna spend more time with family. So here's the prompt then spend more time with family now. I I probably would have wanted to make things right with someone. Then why not make it right now? I probably would want to share Jesus with people who need to know him before he comes back. Then, Then why would I not live with that same sense of expectation and urgency now? And be about sharing him with others. See, Paul recognizes in that time and in every age, in every season, you you live in a world and all that's going on around it and and you have your own life and you kind of get focused in it and we can kind of get numbed out to the sense of what really matters. That's why Paul says it. That's why Jesus says this, wake up, wake up. You can't live like that. You, you got to live with a sense that he's coming back. 
with a joyful expectation, not a fearful one. That's why I don't like some of the left behind and all that. It's like scare you to death. He's coming back. Oh, this is the worst thing in the world. Paul's like, no, no, you just, you live your life. You live what's important. And when he shows up, man, it's going to be that much better. It's going to be that much better. I think of Robbie Roberts was a pilot in the first Iraq war. And uh, right as the war ended, he flew his 300th mission. And they, they had said the war ended. He was waiting on his orders. He knew he was going to be sent home. And it came immediately. They said, get your crew. You can fly home right now. And so he got a crew. They flew. They flew all night. They got to Massachusetts. And, and then that next day with it, he started driving. And he, they'd got in late. So then he had to drive through the night. He pulled into his driveway in Pennsylvania in the morning. And he couldn't wait to surprise his family. And when he pulled in, there's a banner already on the garage. Welcome home, daddy. And, and he walked in and his kids run for him. And there's his wife. She's dressed in this beautiful dress and hair's fixed. And she's welcome home. And he's like, how did you know? How did you know? I mean, nobody called. We just got sent home. And, and she said to him, since the war ended, I knew you were coming home. And so we've lived every day ready because we knew you'd want to surprise us and we wanted to be ready for you. Man, I, I love that attitude. And I think that's what Paul's calling us to here. It's not this sense of, oh, it's the end times and all this. It's this, this sense of, man, Jesus is coming back. It's going to be awesome. But let's be ready for him. Let's be about the things that matter. Let's be about the things with a sense of urgency because it matters to our culture and it matters to the people around you. So pay up and wake up. The third one, give up. Give up, not in surrender, but give up living like everybody else. Look at this verse. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. This is an interesting verse. It's probably not one they had you memorize in vacation Bible school. You know, <laughs> let us not walk in orgies. Okay, uh, with that. I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it there? You look at that. Now, part of it, again, we got to remember Paul's living in Corinth. So he's seeing every form of everything out there. And he goes, we, we, we don't live that way. And in fact, if you kind of break down the categories, that first category, I, I know we think of just orgies like a sex party. It's just, it was unbridled partying. And so this first line is kind of around, you don't live your life just for endless pleasure. You don't live your life just for self-indulgence, just for what feels good. You don't live your life that every day, I'm just thinking about when can I get to what I wanna do? When can I get to where I just can stream the latest show and that's all I wanna do every night? When can I do when I just veg out in front of the TV all the time? When can I do when I just get home and I'm gonna drink enough to take the edge off and keep drinking out of it? He says, it's easy to get caught up in a life that's around self-indulgence but we don't live that way. And, and we also don't live our life for sex. You just don't live for sex. If you live for sex, you can't love other people well. 
And, and when, when he's talking about sexual immorality, that covers the whole gamut there. It covers any, any form of it that you can talk about, whether it's an adulterous or whether it's sex outside of marriage, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's porn, any of those things. He says, you can't live that way and love other people because it'll consume you. And then he gives this third one and, and we don't live, and it's interesting, in quarreling, jealousy, that I'm so caught up of looking at other people's lives and wanting what they have and jealous of them and jealous of their home, jealous of their, and, and I'm quarreling all the time. I'm a little bit angry all the time. I'm always posting something and it always has an edge all the time. He goes, you, you can't do that. That's what everybody else in the world was doing. That's what everybody in our world's doing, by the way. And, and he says all this, he says, we're, we're different because we're Christians. See, here's the reason though. We can't keep chasing a lifestyle that doesn't fulfill. He doesn't say all that stuff because we're Christians, we don't do fun stuff. The world, they get to have fun. They have all the parties, they get to do all that stuff. And we're Christians and because we're Christians, we don't do fun stuff. That's not the reason. He's looking at us, he's going, they think all those things are gonna fill the hole in them. They think all those things are gonna be fulfilling. They think that pleasure of the moment doesn't lead to a crash later. And we know better. And so we don't have to stuff this hole in our souls with all the ways that the world stuffs it because we've already been filled with Jesus. So it changes the way we approach sex as this beautiful gift from God, but not as this thing I gotta give my life to. It changes the way we view pleasure. God gave us pleasure, he created it. But not as this God over me that I gotta chase all the time. It, it changes how we talk about issues in the way that we, we don't have to be as divisive as the rest of the world. Because remember we have the security that our king's on the throne and in control. And so we, we don't chase after a life that doesn't fulfill. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, we're like children in the slums who would rather make mud pies than go on vacation in the ocean because we, we can't fathom what a vacation by the sea would be like. And so we hold on to our little mud pies. And in the same way, Paul says, this life doesn't fulfill, so don't get caught up in it. And, and the way we live shines light in the darkness. Probably one of the greatest charges against the church in this age is, are we really any different than the rest of the world in these areas? And it doesn't mean that we're perfect. And it certainly doesn't mean that we live hypocritical. But sometimes the greatest hypocrisy is no change in behavior, but we kind of put a veneer of Christianity over it. In fact, I was reading about a tattoo artist, Dean Gunther. He lives in Manchester, England. And he perfected what he considers one of his greatest tattoos. He does kind of 3D real life image tattoos. He had a guy come to him and he said, hey, I don't really like working out, but I want a six pack. Can you tattoo a six pack on, on my gut? And he did it, 3D imaging. I mean, if you stand back from afar, you go, whoa, that dude is ripped. But if you get up close enough, you go, oh, that's pitiful, isn't it? I'm scheduled to get it on Tuesday. So, um, no. I mean, it, it's pitiful because I'm gonna put this veneer 
over the reality of my gut. In the same way, Paul says, hey, don't, don't, don't put this veneer of Christianity. We come to church, we do all these things. But none of our lives really change. And we don't look different. Now, now hear me when I say this, because I, I want to make sure I'm clear. I don't care what activity you're involved in. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done currently. The greatest thing about Christianity is Jesus accepts you right where you are. Jesus meets you right where you are. But here's the difference between Christianity and a bar and a club and other group that'll accept you where you are. Jesus meets you where you are, but he doesn't leave you there. He says, there is a better way of living. And if you would follow me and obey me and trust me, I wanna change you that you don't have to live that way. And Paul says the world needs to know that and see that and believe it. And we're the light. We're the ones that represent that he can take broken people just like us who are not perfect, by the way, but we're on the journey and he's changing us. And there's a better way to live. He says, pay up and wake up and give up. The final one is dress up. Dress up, and who are we supposed to dress up like? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You put on Jesus. When you get dressed, usually what you got dressed for represents what you're gonna be about. So I doubt today you're dressed like you were this time yesterday. Some of you, maybe. But, uh, you know, Saturday might be a little more casual, a little more work clothes, yard work or something. You're dressed for it. You look at it, you go, oh, I know the activity you're about. I had a friend in college that he had read the book Dress for Success. And so every time that we took a test in any of our classes, he would show up in a full suit and a tie and everything. He's like, I am dressed to nail this test. I don't think it helped him, but, uh, you know, he looked good in the process with that. Paul says, hey, in the same way, we're, we send a signal to the world and, and ourselves of we dress like Christ. We put on Christ in that. And, and so what he's saying is you put on who he is instead of who we were. I don't satisfy the desires of the flesh who I used to be. I live every day based on who he is. And, and I, I love that he used the line, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he put that the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he gives the full title in that. Man, when I was a kid, I knew my mom was serious when I got the Timothy Allen Lundy come in the house. You knew full name in it. And I think Paul is purposeful when he comes and he goes, when you think of all of who Jesus is, when you think of who I'm putting on with that, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ in it. And I actually, I, I use each of those names, Lord Jesus Christ, and I think about the different aspects of him. And so part of it, when I say I put on the Lord, I recognize he's the Lord, so he rules, he's in charge. So I'm gonna obey him today. So if, I'm put on, if I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he's the Lord, so, so I'm gonna do what he actually tells me to do. He's Jesus. And when I think about Jesus and he walked this planet, man, he loved people. So I'll love like him today. How do I put on Jesus in a way that when I interact with people, I love like he did. 
And if I want to know what that looks like, I read back through the gospels and go, oh, that's how he treated people. I could treat them that way too. And then when I think that he's Christ, he saved me. So I will share him with others today. What what would it look like? Maybe you could try this over the 21 days if you're part of the prayer and fasting. That part of your prayer, if every day you just took a moment and you said, okay, I wanna put on the Lord Jesus Christ today. And so as I pray about it, Jesus, you're Lord. I wanna obey you today. And I promise you, as you pray that, he'll probably bring something up if you're not obeying. You feel the conviction of it. And so you ask for forgiveness. Go teach me to obey you in this area today. And, and Jesus, man, you loved people more than what comes naturally to me. So would you give me the opportunity to love today? And Jesus, you saved me. And I wanna have a sense of urgency of sharing that blessing with others because the time is near. It's always near in that. See, I I think even just this prayer alone, it focuses our heart and mind in a simple way to say, how do I live no matter what's happening in the culture? I can live this way. In fact, we're gonna close out and have some time to do this right now. We're gonna do it through taking communion. Communion's how we remember Jesus and his sacrifice. But we're gonna close out and actually take some time to reflect in that way and put on Christ even before we leave today. So why don't you take a moment, as the worship team comes out, they're gonna lead us in some song and then I'll lead us in the actual taking of communion. So if you're visiting with us, you should have the elements. You're welcome to take. We, all followers of Christ are welcome here to take. And I'll lead us in the actual taking of the elements. But before we do that, I want you to bow your heads for a moment. Just bow where you are. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, We want to magnify him. We want to reflect him, not only in our words, but also in our lives. So I want you to think for just a moment and recognize that Jesus is Lord. Tell him you'll obey him. Maybe even right now, if there's something in your heart where you go, I haven't been obeying him, ask for forgiveness. Repent right now. Recognize him as Jesus, God in flesh who walked on this planet and loved people like no one else. Tell him you want to love like that. To bring people across your path that you could love like that. And then finally, recognize him as Christ. That he saved you. He loved you when you were still a sinner. Thank him for that salvation. And ask him, is there someone you could share with? Someone that you could point to Jesus even this week? Lord, we thank you that we can come and remember you through your sacrifice of communion. What you did on the cross changes our lives now. And so we want to reflect you. We want to magnify you. We want everything about our lives to be about you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. 
We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.